Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us all the way to 11 o'clock. We've got you till 12 for an hour of science. Now, in a very unusual situation in the studio with me today, and I do mean in the studio, which is rare in these COVID times, uh, Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's great to see you in the flesh, it, three-dimensionally. It's great to see you. When I heard about this was going to happen this week, I got all excited. I got a haircut, so the headphones fit nicely because they're over the head and and it it just feels weird see i've uh, forgotten the etiquette of noticing that you got a haircut <laughs> i'm just so used to well, not knowing what's going on you know i really noticed i used a lot less shampoo these last two days so that was mm. nice yeah very good and dr linden good morning good morning dr shane lovely to be here in the studio to see you both in person i'm sorry i haven't Managed to get a haircut yet, but I am wearing jeans for the first time in about six months, so See, you're welcome. Yeah, I don't talk about pants, but I say I'm wearing shoes. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I have to wear, unfortunately, I have to wear shoes to the station every week because there are certain rules. That's, but, that's um, good. But, you know, no one knows. Anyway, and uh, online, we, we do still have one person in our virtual studio because we have limits on how many we can shove into these little booths. Dr. Laura, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I'm just still living it like it's 2020. You know, <laughs> haven't been able to get a haircut yet. Yep. You know? Yep. Uh, give, it, well, give it time. Yeah, you don't look slowly. like you need a haircut. It, it, you know, you, you're doing okay. You're doing okay. <laughs> you're doing fine. I wouldn't worry. Um, I'm hoping you've got shoes on. Uh, no, I'm in my bedroom, Shane. <laughs> there we go. No shoes on. Anyway, folks, we've got some really good guests coming up in a little bit, but we're going to start off the show with some news as always. Uh, Dr. Laura, do you want to start us off? Sure. I actually I found a really, really cool study this week that actually gives a biological mechanism to why humans have been growing taller and maturing faster over the you know, age-old centuries. Mm. And this is something we know, right? I mean, particularly in the last 100 years, and particularly in Europe, this is like one of the biggest examples where people have been getting taller over the past 100 years. And I don't know if you know how much taller, but on average, it's six inches. And that's a huge amount. Actually, one of the highlights that I found, which was highly relevant for me because um, I'm really into K-drama at the moment, is that South Korean men and women have actually had the biggest height spurts linking with the uh, you know huge development in South Korea. And you might be thinking, well, that's kind of obvious, right? I mean, of course, everyone's getting taller as there's better nutritional health. So better um, nutritional states for women during their pregnancies, there's less disease. But that gives you an explanation, but it doesn't actually tell you the how and why. And that's where science comes in. So this paper was published this week in Nature. So you know it's a big deal if it's published in Nature. And they um, showed that the key to this increase in height was the melanocortin-3 receptor, which actually links nutritional state with the onset of puberty and growth. And so just to get into the science of this for a second, we know that food sends hormone signals such as leptin and insulin, and these can act on the hypothalamus of the brain. And what this can do is it can stimulate the release of melanocortins. And if you're thinking, oh, maybe I've heard of that before, you know, like a melanocortin receptor, you might be thinking of a few years ago, there was a huge study showing that the um, melanocortin-4 receptor was actually regulating appetite. And if you had a mutation in this receptor, that was linked with obesity. 
So, but there's two receptors in the brain. And in this study, they gave a function to um, the melanocortin-3 receptor. And that showed that when this was stimulated, it controlled the release of hormones that induced the onset of puberty and growth. And so they worked this all out in mouse models. And then they went to the UK Biobank and they looked at the genetics of more than half a million people. And they found that there were several thousand that had a mutation in this receptor. And in people that had that mutation, they had a much, they had a far greater delayed onset of puberty and they were shorter. And so, and also they had a much lower muscle mass. And so thinking of the implications of this beyond just the fact it's freaking interesting to say, we've known this happens, this is the receptor that controls it. It actually can help diagnose children that are having this later onset of puberty. And you can attribute that to look at mutations in this receptor, but also knowing to stimulate this receptor, there are chronic conditions whereby you get muscle wasting. And so knowing what you can stimulate now might give you a bit of a key into treating those diseases. So I thought that was a really beautiful study. It's full on. I've got a 14-year-old that's about to pass me in height. Mm. I'm not sure if I can tinker with this receptor in any way to uh, halt yeah, that just, to, just, just one centimetre. Well, just so he's one centimetre shorter, I think, he, you know. Well, yeah, and imagine the stimulation in the Netherlands. They're, <laughs> they're also, like, the they're all towering above us all. <laughs> Super interesting stuff. Thank you, Laura. Great stuff. Uh, Dr. Ray, over to you. Dr. Shane, I saw a story this week uh, from Stanford University on whales, and it resonated with something. Someone in the Antarctic Division had told me, oh, I think 10 years ago, we were talking about the environment, and this is someone working in the Australian Antarctic Division, and his hypothesis about a lot of the problems in the ecosystem in the Southern Ocean was there wasn't enough whale poo. And I kind of went... If I had a dollar, I, I know. Any time someone told me that there's just it, not enough whale poo in it, my it, garden, in it, my it, ocean. And, and so, why that resonated is this study was actually out of Stanford, where they tracked seven different baleen whale species. Those are the ones without teeth that filter krill mm-hmm. um, to eat them, and they actually tracked these seven different whale species over a long enough time to estimate how much krill they eat. And so, the original estimates for the amount of krill that whales ate prior to whaling was about 190 million tons annually, which is as much or more than the entire commercial fishing haul globally every year. Wow. So the yeah. scale of, of amount of, of biomass that whales eat is actually quite large. But what this study showed was actually, after carefully accounting and tracking for whales and different feeding habits, because that number is quite old, it's actually three times that. Hmm. So the biomass that whales eat is huge. And and what you ask in an evolutionary sense is why would you evolve to an animal evolve to have such a huge biomass requirement? Because the impact and drain on the ecosystem one would think would be huge. You take need a lot of energy. You have to eat a lot of food. How is that going to be sustained? But in the end, actually, what they found is whales are effectively a megafauna, and megafauna, aside from being really large, is something that actually can affect the ecosystem and shift the ecosystem by simply its presence. Yep. And, and what, we act, what they've actually put together based on these, these uh, um, amounts of food is that the whale food poo cycle actually impacts the environment and drives the production of krill. Mm. So whale poo is very high in iron. Whales poop iron. You get a plume of iron. From there, you get a phytoplankton. A bunch of diatoms eat the iron. The krill eat the diatoms. And then the whales eat the krill. And why this is important is, and particularly in the Southern Ocean, nutrients and growth of diatoms are limited by the amount of iron and water. It's a mm. low iron environment. So the whales actually provide the iron that drives the krill growth cycle. 
And and what's really crazy about this is prior to whaling, did you know we used to have swarms of krill that made parts of the ocean look red because krill are high in iron and are red? And that was in the 1930s. The last big red swarm that actually turned a large part of the ocean red was in the 1980s. Hmm. And so this is the other weird thing. About a million whales were killed in whaling. And normally, and, and whales are effectively the predator for krill. Normally, when you kill the predator, yep. the predatory target species population goes up. We saw that with, for example, deer and, yeah. and, and when we kill off wolves. But here, the uh, populations of krill have actually declined since the whales have declined. Because the whales are actually, and that iron poo cycle is actually what's driving the entire ecosystem. And the estimate is that the amount of iron that's available in the ocean pre-whaling to now is a, a factor of 10 less. And by engineering and thinking about how to maintain iron levels through even artificial means, are talking about ways to engineer the southern oceans because the follow-on health for the rest of the ocean and humanity is immense. Yeah. So what an amazing mm. impact from just having whale poo. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about iron seeding in oceans for decades now, and they've tried it, and it does work, of course. But, you know, the alternative would be just a whale. Yeah. It's kind of cool. So according to the David Attenborough documentary that my toddler loves watching at the moment, whales are really bouncing back. And it's been incredible how resilient the communities are and how many more whales we're seeing now that whaling has has stopped. I wonder what the lead time will be or whether there'll be a kind of a ceiling on that until the krill manage to catch up now that they're getting more poo again. That is that is the challenge. They'd noticed uh, like the, there's a blue whale pod they were tracking and it – it's getting better, but it's just not at the scale mm. that it used to be because a million whales takes a long time to replenish. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and just even the scale of the idea, the oceans actually changed color in different regions yeah. because we've removed whales. Yeah. We've affected the biomass in the Southern Ocean that much. That's crazy. Yeah, crazy stuff. Thank you, Ray. Dr. Linden? Well, let's continue with the theme of what we've done to the planet. I just wanted to give a, a quick update on COP26. In last week's show, Stacey did a really nice introduction to what's happening in Glasgow this fortnight. We're, we're a week into this big climate summit, and it's been all over the news, but I kind of just wanted to pick out a few highlights, a few of the, the good and the bads that have come out that I've seen for the last seven days or so. So let's look at the good news first. There have been some big pledges made. Um, the US in particular has led a big, a big pledge and a big um, signed plan to reduce methane emissions by about 30% by 2030, which mm. is good. Uh, methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. It's, it's more potent than carbon dioxide. It doesn't exist in as great a volume in the atmosphere, but it does have a big impact. You know, that, that graph is going up as well as the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere graph. So Making a pledge to reduce methane emissions is really important. Uh, and the other big news story that was circulating this week was a pledge or um, a, a plan signed by over 200, 300 countries, I think, to halt deforestation by the end of the decade. And that's really important too. We know that forests are really crucial, uh, carbon sinks. And importantly, uh, this pledge has been signed by countries including Brazil and Indonesia, places that mm. together are the home <clears throat> of about 90% of our forests. So that, that's really great. 
There have also been a couple of big plans and strong statements made by large emitting countries like India and China to reduce their emissions to zero by 2060 and 2070. Obviously, sooner would be better, but that's really great. And some new modelling by a couple of places around the world, including experts here at the University of Melbourne, have suggested that the pledges made in the last week have if they all are fulfilled, will hopefully keep us under that two degrees of warming, that that two degree threshold of of warming of the planet above pre-industrial levels. So temperatures less than two degrees warmer than they were in the in the 1850s, uh, which is great. That reduces. Like before, before COP26, people were saying we'd be going for about 2.7 degrees. So these pledges, mm. they, I mean, they are making a difference, which is which is really positive. Yep. But well, still two degrees. Well, exactly. You know, that's still that's a, bit, a lot. That's it's probably yeah. too much for the reef, Way for example. Yeah. And you know, so let's look at the bad news. Methane is only part of this story. Methane and deforestation. If you look at a graph of where the emissions are coming from, if we were to magically get rid of those issues, there's still a big chunk of graph that is associated mm. with this, with the warming. You know, carbon dioxide is still the main source of human-induced climate change. And so you could say that these big statements are skirting around the edges of the real issue, to be honest. Um, and while it's great that deforestation and biodiversity have been discussed at COP26, this is about the first COP where they've really taken that idea and included it seriously in discussions. Beforehand, these, this biodiversity and nature aspect, for some reason, has not been discussed at all at these kinds Bizarre. of summits. I know, it's very <laughs> strange. But yeah. This statement of, oh, we're going to halt deforestation, that's actually been made before, so yeah. in 2014. I, yeah, yeah. yeah, I have a suspicion some of that is easier for the industries there because the industries, for example, for these large tree plantations in different countries are now having to be held account for sustainable sourcing. Mm. So it's now unpopular from a business sense to be necessarily having feedstocks that are from deforested versus established plantations. Mm. Yeah. So they're, they're, you know, they've already cut down an awful lot. So maybe yep. I don't know. That's that clearly that's a hypothesis and a speculation. But. And there are also removes new players from coming in as yeah. competition. You it's know, there's a whole true. lot of reasons yeah. for them to it's, halt it. So yeah. that aren't altruistic. But, but if yeah. we're not grappling with with carbon emissions, we're really not talking about fossil fuel use. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And that that's the other thing that there's lots of grand statements and big plans and lots of big bosses that have been at COP in the last week. Normally, from what I've read, the world leaders used to come at the end, but to sort of yeah. help clean up any mess, but they've come this week to make big statements and then they're, um, you know, like Scott Morrison's gone now. It's great that he was there, but he's already left. And in the next week, that's when the real plan's going to be made for what's going to happen in the next eight years or so. Um, and that's when real action will be discussed, not these big yeah. vague gestures right now. So let's see what happens in a week. Yep, I think we'll be in the same place. But uh, you never know, there's always some We've hope. We've got to be hopeful but, uh, and... And keep talking about it. Yeah. Well, uh, that pretty much ends our news segment. Thank you, Dr. Laura. You can uh, return to your bedroom uh, activities, you know, whatever you're doing, <laughs> lying around reading magazines. Uh, good to see you. Lovely to see you. Yep. Great to chat. <laughs> Indeed. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back with a couple of guests. We're going to be talking about a brand new centre that is um, has just been funded at part of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, a very big deal for um, brain cancer patients. Triple R. 
And welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Dr. Sarah Best and Dr. Saskia Freitag, both from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Good morning, you two. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great. Morning, Dr. Shane. Morning. It's great to talk to you both. Now, of course, uh, Sarah, you've been on the show uh, at least once before, actually, maybe a couple of times before, um, talking about your work there at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. But this is different. You've got, well, not different for you. It's the same sort of work. But um, some really big things have come out in the last week for you and the team there with regards to investment and research programs. Give us a bit of a rundown of what the new centre that you've been funded is about and where the money came from. Mm-hmm. So we're um, part of the Brain Cancer Centre. So the Brain Cancer Centre was launched last Monday by an incredible donation of money through Carrie's Beanies for Brain Cancer Foundation, which, of course, is led by Carrie Bickmore and has had an incredible amount of philanthropic donation where people have voted with their feet to really get um, more funding into brain cancer research. Mm. And together with conversations with Carrie and amazing science communicators like Misty Jenkins and Doug Hilton, they really, um, the idea of the Brain Cancer Centre has culminated. And this was um, also recently included a $16 million commitment from the Victorian government and Minister Pulford, which really was able to bring together the Brain Cancer Centre, which isn't a bricks and mortar centre, we're um, an umbrella of a number of different laboratories where our key focus is on brain cancer research. So, Sarah, can you, can you talk through how this sort of differs from what was already sort of going on? Because, I mean, there's, there's already been a lot of work going on in brain cancer, some you know, really spectacular work actually across Australia and elsewhere, of course. But this, this connects these pieces up in what way? How is this going to be a bit of a game changer? So as, as you say, in the precinct, we have a number of labs um, that all focus on brain cancer research, but the Brain Cancer Centre will really bring everyone together in a collaborative effort where everyone will really work together and talk to each other more and really form like a stronger network with a real focus on improving treatments for brain cancer. And, of course, an injection of money definitely helps this, and which is where um, the the Brain Cancer Centre and the philanthropic donations have really made an incredible difference. Yeah. Now, Saskia, I haven't forgotten you, but I'm just going to ask Sarah one more question before we move on to some of the really interesting omics stuff. What what is the sort of current treatments or the regimes and so forth for people with brain cancer? I mean, where are we at? I mean, I know I had a a family friend whose husband, um, you know, went through a period of treatment for about seven years. It didn't end successfully. Um, A lot of people I know, you know, suffer similar consequences. It is a, you know, a vicious disease. Where where are we at the moment? What is the sort of standard of treatment? How are we doing? And how, how has it improved over recent decades? Yeah, so unfortunately, treatment for brain cancer hasn't changed substantially in the last 20 years, and brain cancer patients will generally um, have surgery and radiotherapy and a type of chemotherapy called temozolomide. And this treatment regime, it, it is really quite unchanged, and that's something that we really need to drive better models so that we can identify new treatments in this in this space. And really, um, the main goal of the centre is, of course, to end brain cancer as a terminal um, illness. And we really need to do that 
to generate more effective and some curative therapies as well. Yeah. Now, Saskia, you you look at some really interesting aspects, and I guess this is where the real new technology and so forth comes in and high-level computing and all the things that we didn't have, maybe had some of them in some places 20 years ago, but certainly not in our benchtops and certainly not in most laboratories. But Tell us a bit about the, the sort of the cancer environment that you're looking at and, and how you sort of go about modeling that and understanding that. Because my understanding with many brain cancers is we're talking about solid masses. We're not talking about cancers through the blood like leukemia and others. We're talking about tumors and things where things are fixed and in, often in inoperable locations. So how do, you, how do you sort of scope out what the environment looks like, you know, in a, in a sort of modeling sense and so forth? How do we understand that? So, yeah, I- Absolutely. I think when it comes to brain cancer, we have a really, we're faced with a really heterogeneous um, tumor. So it has, it's in the brain. The brain is a very complex organ with a lot of different cell types. Um, And it's not the most well understood organ either. So I'm actually someone who comes from brain background and I'm I'm, I'm making my way into cancer. So for me, it's It's very fascinating to see that, yes, we have this complexity in the brain, but then it's kind of very much mirrored in the tumor. Um, and so, yeah, these new technologies that we now have where we can look at individual cells and see their gene expression, um, see sort of their metabolomics levels, and do that all on an individual cell basis are really, really helpful because that means we can really scope out what all these different cells are doing, how they're interacting with each other, and then how they are causing cancer. And also try to find potential sort of targets in in terms of cell types um, that we could, you know, either push towards helping helping fight the cancer or just, you know, fight with our drugs and make sure that they are killed and that the tumor goes away that way. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I find fascinating here is how cancer differs from other, you know, illnesses and so forth. Like, so, I mean, at, at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute, you guys do a huge amount on malaria. But, you know, malaria is malaria, right? If I get malaria, you get malaria. We have the same malaria. You know, it's, it's the same but, well, parasite, right? It's the same parasite that you get there, right? Um, it's the same thing for all of us. But if I get a brain tumor and you get a brain tumor and Sarah gets one, you know, hope never happens. But they can all be different, right, with different genetics. Am I, am I correct in saying that? Yes, absolutely. Like, it is incredibly heterogeneous. So no two brain cancers seem to be alike. And that makes it really, really tough to treat them because basically – that's what it kind of look, looks like at the moment is that everyone is going to need their own little treatment. And that mm. means we will have to be able to a look at, you know, the brain tumor. Um, and that means we have to surgically operate, unfortunately, and then be able to very quickly analyze that tissue and get back something that can, you know, at least give us hints as to what drugs might work best. And that at the moment, unfortunately, isn't quite where we're at yet. And, Part of our sort of aims in the Brain Cancer Center is, you know, getting that underway. Yeah. Now, this is one of the things I find really fascinating, this issue around drugs, because, and just correct me if I'm wrong in any any way here, because I could be shooting off in the wrong direction, but my understanding is with a lot of drug development, you get to a certain point in trials, and the efficacy or the effectiveness of those drugs 
is not adequate for them to go forward and or they may be problematic for certain individuals and or they may only work for certain individuals that are very small in number, say 13%. But if we understand more about the genomics of what's going on in the individual, I, I have this sort of mindset that I've heard about and so forth that seems amazing where we could go back to that shelf of forgotten drugs and say, hey, there's that one that was only good for 7% of people, but you know those 7% can have their brain cancer cured if we understand how that all works. Is that, is that the direction this is going in? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we want to do. And um, part of the $16 million um, investment from the Victorian government is very much going towards that, helping patients right now um, with those omics technologies by getting an idea of what sort of their underlying genetics are in their brain tumors and then testing some drugs that we still have on the shelf and seeing whether they work and then very quickly changing that if it doesn't. So mm. that is part of um, this Victorian trial. Um, yeah, and we're really hoping that we're going to see some immense, immense improvements that are so dearly needed here. Yeah. Fantastic. Sarah, when, when we talk about the approaches to, to cancer these days, it, it seems as though over the last decade there's been this incredible shift towards using our own immune system to essentially do the job. And I, I suppose the way I've always thought about this is our immune system has failed to do the job to keep the cancer from occurring in the first place. So it seems logical that we'd kind of correct, try and correct that and get it working again to deal with cancers as our bodies do throughout our lives, actually. Um, and is this where we're heading with brain cancer as well as we as we have with other cancers, or is it a special case where that's not as good an option? Yeah, that's a really great question. So the brain, as Saskia mentioned, is quite different. Its interaction with the immune system is quite different from other organs as well. And so immunotherapies or therapies where we can really energize the immune system to retarget the tumor, um, it's still not quite known how much better efficacy that can have in brain cancer. But some work that is being done at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Misty Jenkins' lab is looking at CAR T-cells and how can we specifically instruct a T-cell to find a target that's on a brain tumour. And that's some really exciting work that's going on, which I think will really push that direction. Yeah. Sarah, um, tell us a bit about what your sort of day is like. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing with Suske, it's a lot of computing. Am I right there, Suske? Like a lot of computing time? Yes, it is. And also, I'm still not in Melbourne yet oh. because I have only very recently been appointed. So I'm actually joining you from Perth. Oh, that's all right. So, stay, stay in Perth. Stay in Perth for a few more months until we get our stuff sorted. Um, you're probably better over there at the moment. More freedoms. Um, but Sarah, in terms of your day, like, what does it look like in the lab of Sarah Best? I mean, is it just all pipette tubes and PCR machines, <laughs> or you know, tell us what what sort of stuff you're doing with regards to the cancer cells and the work that you're doing there? Look, Shane, at the moment, I wish it was full of pipettes and uh, cancer cells, but shipping is a little bit slow at the moment, as for everything. Um, so the lab at the moment, actually, I should really describe the structure of the lab because it's quite different. So this is a lab um, with where three joint lab heads. So myself, Saskia and Jim Whittle all run the one lab. It's um, a new model and it's really exciting because as you've um, pointed out, we're all kind of coming into the research from different directions. Mm. So I'm a, a cancer biologist. 
Jim is a neuro-oncologist, a clinician, and Saskia is a bioinformatician. So we're all coming from these really different and diverse backgrounds, really to tackle the one question. But um, for me, day-to-day in the lab, um, so my research expertise is in generating preclinical models of cancer. And so I'm really looking at how can we bridge the gap between a normal brain and a, a tumour that gets excised from a patient and how can we understand the information in between. And something that's really occurring in, um, in brain cancer as opposed to other cancers is that a lot of drugs that go through some um, rudimentary clinical models, they don't translate into the clinic. Mm. And the rate of translation is quite low for brain cancer compared to other types of cancers. And uh, this is for a a great many factors, but one of those is that we really need improved preclinical models so that what we're looking at before we see a patient is something that is going to perform better. And so my drive is to really generate um, improved models, to really um, illuminate those regions from from normal to unhealthy. Yeah. And, yeah. So do you get do you get live tissue from from patients? Is that is that how that works? And how do you how do you keep it alive? <laughs> so there are, there are a few different ways to keep it alive, and it kind of depends what you want to do with it in the end. And actually, um, that question really nicely relates into Jim's interest, um, which I'll just touch upon briefly. But you should definitely have him on. Mm. But he's interested in perioperative clinical trials which is where before a surgery, a brain cancer patient um, would receive a a treatment, so a a clinical trial treatment, and be on treatment for a couple of weeks before the surgery, and then we get the surgical tissue. And from the research perspective, that is super exciting because it means we get to learn a little bit about the patient and the tumour before they go on a treatment, And then immediately after they've been exposed to the treatment, we'll be able to study their brain tissue and be able to see what did that treatment do? Was it effective? And if it was effective, a part of this clinical trial that um, Jim Whittle and Kate Drummond and Mark Rosenthal are running is that if it is effective, that patient might have the opportunity to stay on that drug for longer. So this both improves preclinical models from from my point of view and being able to get access to tissue and um, samples to really investigate what those drugs are doing. And from the clinical side of things, from Jim's point of view as well, he gets to see how a patient's responding and improving treatment for patients. Yeah, one of the things that I recall being a huge surprise, and, and you can you may know the numbers for this and, and throw them at me if you do, is the just the sheer number of patients that we have that come through with these particular conditions that end up on clinical trials. Like I remember long ago, I thought it would be a few percent. But in fact, here in Melbourne, the vast majority of patients with, with any sort of brain tumour um, will be involved in a clinical trial. Is that still true? And, and do you know how high that percentage is? That's... Um... That's Jim's field of interest, but I can say kind of from the periphery that definitely something that the VCCC are really pushing towards is more molecular testing of tumours, and this is what Saskia was touching upon as well. So if we can identify something that is occurring in a tumour that Mm. might make um, it favourable to a certain clinical trial, that is definitely something that's been actioned. Mm. Now I'm going to hand you over to, to Lyndon, who you can't see, but you will be able to hear. 
Thanks, Dr. Shane. Hi, I'm Sarah and Saskia. It's, it's really exciting to hear about the, the Brain Cancer Laboratory coming to Melbourne and hopefully you getting here soon as well, Saskia. And I'm fascinated as someone very far outside the field about this idea of all of your brains and your superpowers coming together with your different areas of interest. And I was wondering whether an aspect of the laboratory will also include training to try to build the next generation of people who will be studying this kind of work and combining all those different aspects of knowledge that you have. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the idea of the Brain Cancer Center very much is training a next generation of um, scientists. And that's with the understanding that, you know, we're not probably not, unfortunately, going to see a cure of brain cancer in the next 10 years. So we really have to push the next generation to start understanding brain cancer better and really making this their life goal. And so part of our laboratory, and this is an approach that Sarah and Jim and me have started talking about really early on when we were building the laboratory was that we always want to train everyone coming into our laboratory really with a perspective of all of our sort of expertises. And it's really exciting to see that students and, um, you know, postdocs seem to really respond to this model and really want to learn, you know, the bioinformatics, for example. I'm always astounded by um, when we interview candidates that they say, oh, yeah, I've been in the lab, but I really, really want to get onto the computer. And I know that this is a really important area in the next, you know, 20 years, and we really have to get behind this. And that's super exciting to me. I think we're kind of hitting a nerve with this model. Yeah, I think it's it's something that's very important to build that base and then have it sort of rise up after a protracted period of time. Sarah, just before we let you go, it's $40 million, which I know for many people will think, wow, that's a lot of money. In terms of research, it's not. I think it's a it's a it's an excellent start, and I think Kerry Bickmore putting this money forward after you know her her situation um, and what she's gone through there is extraordinary that that money's been generated. What does this mean though in terms of um, long term for the, the center? Is how long will forty million last? What else do you need? You know what are we what are we looking at over the next sort of five to ten years? <laughs> a great question so i think it's a it's an amazing launch pad and it's something that um it's going to build more research and more um more mass in the area but it's something that we also really need to to continue to think about the future and um to to get more philanthropic money um to really push things forward this week i know ideas grants came out and from um, the government Nine and a half percent of candidates were successful, um, which means that we really need the community to to get behind us so that we can really start to, to communicate better with the community and to have more involvement. And um, philanthropy plays an incredible place in that. Yeah, it's certainly something where, you know, when you hear that and you hear about the fact that, you know, we're we're talking about a a really small but significant amount, I should say, small but significant amount of money from the Victorian state government. I didn't hear you mention the federal government involved in this centre in the sense of direct funding for for this new new piece. Um, The majority of the money coming from a philanthropic organisation with Kerry Bickmore leading that. Fantastic, but boy, you know, we're, we're talking about an insidious disease that you would think it is not hard to make the case for 
for more research to be done. But look, this is an outstanding achievement for all of you to get this up and, and going. Um, congratulations. Uh, I expect to, to hear a lot of great things coming out. And I think, um, as you say, it's a really good start. It's, it's a fantastic thing to bring so many different people together. And we've had others like Misty Jenkins and other on the show before, and we'll talk to her now doubt again in the future. But Sarah, Saskia, thanks so much for being part of Einstein and Gogo today. Congrats on the on the on the um the start of this new new sort of adventure and and good luck. I hope you get some astounding results for everyone who needs them. Thanks very much, Shane. Thank you. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to a science show on Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Online with us now is Professor Megan Munsey. She's from the School of Biomedical Sciences and the Melbourne Medical School at the University of Melbourne and the convener of Stem Cells Australia. Welcome back to the show, Megan. It has been a long time since we have spoken. Great to be back, Dr. Shane. When were you on the show last? It must have been about 10 years was it that long ago no No, i i was thinking more like 2017 2017 okay well you see this is what's happened there's there's two years (laughs) that we're not counting of course so you know i think that's you know i don't count 2021 and 2020 they don't exist it's all all a blur isn't it (laughs) absolutely now we first met many many years ago um probably at the university of melbourne but at a range of events and so forth some which i emceed some which you spoke at around some of the incredible dangers that were popping up with regards to stem cell therapies offered by less than reputable sort of um you know characters shall we say and i remember once you said to me you know if medicare wasn't involved you'd probably run a mile is that um was that good advice at the time a long time ago i still think i still think it's a great flag you know it's a great red flag we have some terrific checks and balances around what is sort of reputable reliable medicines and and medical interventions and and medicare rebates as a a, and and healthcare rebates Mm. in in general whether it's for your private insurance or through medicare is a is a terrific way to kind of draw a line in the sand about what might be reputable and what might be an exaggerated claim yeah now i want to sort of take people on a bit of a journey here tell us where we were about a decade ago with regards to stem cell therapy availability in Australia and in nearby countries and what that looked like. Yeah, so about a decade ago, we started to see clinics that are popping up, calling themselves stem cell clinics and offering treatments for a huge range of conditions and and, uh, diseases. And, uh, you know, they were using the rhetoric uh, and and some of the excitement that we were seeing in sort of mm. academic research yep. around the potential of stem cells, but just starting to kind of put up their shingle out the front, call themselves a stem cell specialist, and just sort of starting to put cells back into you. Mm. Whether those cells were stem cells or cells made from stem cells was highly dubious and and still remains a really big concern for the field. You know, 10 years ago uh, and even before that, we were seeing companies operating in countries where there was sort of little or no regulation. Yep. But over the last 10 years, we've seen this kind of move to countries that are quite well regulated. And you would think 
would have barriers in place to stop these kind of exploitative practices, including Australia. Um, but that hasn't been the case. Although I have an update for you, so perhaps I could mm. talk about yeah, that. Yeah, in a moment. absolutely. But that, but that big distinction, and, and for for a consumer, for someone whose loved one is ill, trying to work out what is legitimate and what is not, and you know what are the real risks and benefits, has been very complex. And I suppose I mean we we just had a discussion with um, a couple of you know nearby colleagues to you there at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute about clinical trial treatments for, for brain cancers. And, you know, when you think about that, these are desperate people. They, they hear about, you know, experimental trials that, you know, are not, you know, not sort of broadly available to everyone at that point. And they are, there are some unknowns there, but they're well regulated, they're well controlled, and they're well designed. And so we kind of encourage interaction with those trials. But as you say, it seems as though a lot of these organizations, many private companies, have been building their businesses of that same piece of hope even though they don't have that same sort of regulatory umbrella over the top of them. You're absolutely right. And I think they're, they're you know, people want to see medical research advance. And mm. indeed, some of the some of the reports have been people who've been harmed in these experimental, unproven stem cell treatments have actually thought they were participating in clinical research. They thought they were participating in a clinical trial and even thought it was reasonable to pay for the privilege to participate. Mm. that they could possibly afford it, they want to see the field advance, they don't want to see people suffer like they are. So you can kind of see that it's a golden kind of business opportunity because you can sort of perhaps manipulate or at least service um, that willingness in the community. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting area. And, in fact, one of my colleagues in the US, uh, Lee Turner, has just published a paper this week where he's actually shown that in the US there's been a four-time, four-fold increase in the number of businesses that have been operating in the last five years. Yeah. So that's sort of, to me, mind-blowing. So 15, um, 1,500 clinics uh, are operating. It's incredible. I mean, it's it would be it would be amazing if they all did exactly what their brochures say. Um, sadly, of course, that's <laughs> not the case. So, where are we now in Australia? I mean, what's progressed since since that point ten years ago? I mean, this is what you, you know a lot of your work has been about about sort of making making a, a scenario for patients and consumers across the board here where they can engage with these technologies in some cases, but in a safe and regulated way. So, what does that look like now for us here in Australia? Well, I think we've seen two really big changes. Uh, the first is uh, Google Google has stopped allowing advertising, or at least has tried to stop advertising around unproven stem cell therapies. Mm. So I used to be able to, for my lectures, pop in, you know, yep. stem cells and spinal cord injury stem cells and Parkinson's and come up with a screen grab that were all of these clinics around the world, including Australia, offering treatment. Yep. If you do that now, there's, I think, one that pops up that oh, somehow wow. slips through the filter. Yeah. So that is a big change, and it actually came about in the US because of a very high-profile case where a woman who was uh, losing her vision through macular degeneration but, you know, thought she was participating in a clinical trial and then was actually rendered blind wow. in the in intervention she paid for. So that's a big step. So Google doing that, I think, changes at least stops the ease of direct consumer marketing. Yep. The other huge change in Australia is that the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, have taken a much stronger stance around the use of a patient's own cells. Ten years ago, if you were a registered medical practitioner, you would be able to 
offer stem cell treatments uh, without any oversight from the TGA. That's all changed. That sounds extraordinary. So could, uh, just just to pause there for a moment, what does that mean? A registered medical practitioner. I mean, what we're not talking about surgeons and specialists no, 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 here. No. <laughs> what does that include? You must have a medical degree, I, and you yeah. must be registered through the um, through APRA. Wow, and that's it. Yep. You've, you've never you've never heard of stem cells so, before last week, but a, good to go. It's a rather low bar. It was a rather low bar. Ah. Uh, and of course, we've been asking for it to change for some time, yeah. and and we did see those changes introduced in 2018, and there has been a slight lag uh, in um, perhaps enforcing it. But I am seeing a lot of the websites that I used to follow disappear. Mm. That said, there's a slight shifting of terminology, you know, to perhaps regenerative medicine rather than stem cells, and I'm currently doing a research project looking at that. But I think that we should be um, again, pleased that, that the, the right regulators are making an impact in this area and protecting consumers. I think I always, I always reflect when I say that because I think a lot of people want to have the choice, right? They want to find something. But what I, what I want to see is those companies that were exploiting hopes of people, um, perhaps not in business, and opportunities for people to participate in clinical research, to participate and be mm. involved in research more broadly, have those pathways more easily uh, accessible. Yeah. It's interesting to me how important it is that we, we get this right because there is always an imperative when we're communicating science, especially from people working in this field of stem cell research and, and regenerative medicine, to you know garner the interest of both the politicians and the populace in the work they're doing. But of course, no one hearing about that work has a little timer in their pocket that says, oh, it's been four years since I read that in the Herald Sun. That should be ready now for me to, to use. And of course, that's where there is a big gap um, that you've been filling, actually, to try and say, hang on a minute. No, <laughs> no, you've, you've got to make sure that the TGA has approved this. And if they haven't, and you can't use your Medicare card to, to get this treatment, then something is amiss. I mean, there's a you know, we can't stop the scientists from doing this because that's the way they get the research money that they need, right? We're kind of a little caught unless there's people like yourself in the middle. Yeah, I think. Look, I think I think the scientific community are also getting a, a little bit more uh, perhaps um, careful in how they communicate. Mm. And I think we're trying to move away from the five-year, 10-year time frame and think perhaps about a generational impact of our work. Yep. Uh, and, and, and also trying to talk about stem cell research in a, in a condition-specific manner because some, some conditions will be easier to, to develop a cellular therapy for. Some will be very challenging yep. and trying to get that nuance into the conversation. But, yeah, I think through the Stem Cells Australia website and through other initiatives, there's been a really big change. I, I now have these really sophisticated conversations with people who are aware that there are some perhaps less than reputable operators out there and they want to know where to go yep. for more information that's more reliable. So the Stem Cells Australia website's been fantastic for that. But I have to congratulate the TGA as well for really lifting their game and having clear information for consumers on the website and, of course, linking back to our website, which is always nice. Yep. Now we have a quick question from Ray before I let you go. Actually, just as I stood up, you answered Sorry. It. Go, Ray. Right. <laughs> just as I stood up, you'd answered it. It was where can people go to understand um, what whether or not their treatment is, is reputable? And you said the stem cell website. Does that also apply for trials as well? 
Well, there's a clinical trials registry that just okay. is, which is excellent, uh, where people can go. But I think the best place to go, Ray, is to talk to um, your your treating practitioner. You know, your doctor, the, your specialist, somebody who knows mm. you and your condition. Because what is you know, clinical trials have a really tight eligibility. So you you may not be eligible for a clinical trial, but you probably need someone to kind of help you walk, walk through that and walk through that choice. And even the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial should be done very carefully, Yeah, and I, I think. I think it's likely too that, like, you know, if your ophthalmologist doesn't know about it, it's probably not something you should be getting involved with. I think that's one of the, the sort of take-homes there. And, and Megan, yeah. I, I just before we go, I just want to sort of congratulate you because you're also in the running to be one of the winners of the Australian Health and Medical Research Awards, um, which will be apparently at a gala ceremony. I don't know what that is anymore. <laughs> apparently they still exist in some states, um, in Sydney in December. So we wanted to wish you the best of luck for that because you have been tirelessly doing this. And I remember bumping into you in corridors and that over the years, and you, there were days where you looked a little tired from from the battle um but you've done it you've managed to get the tga moving you've got a, a huge amount of um information available for people now so that they can access the therapies that are legitimate but you know reject the ones that aren't so good luck with with that award um it's certainly well deserved um i'll be i'll be furious if you don't get it but uh you know i think um well done and and on behalf of all of us thank you for your your tireless work in in pushing this forward thank you very much oh thank you so much and thank you for having me on the program at you know, it's, it's nice to be nominated for the Research Australia Award, but it's it's terrific to have a chance to come and speak to you and to speak to your audience. I think it's really important just to keep this, this conversation going. This is a complex area and, you yep. know, we just need to talk about it. Absolutely. Megan, you're always welcome here on Triple R. Thanks so much. And we will chat again at some stage soon. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Folks, that was Professor Megan Munsey from the School of Biomedical Sciences in the Melbourne Medical School at the University of Melbourne and the convener of Stem Cells Australia and the person to thank, in my view, uh, in large part for making a lot of these changes that make us all safer. We are almost out of time and we're going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Edith who are happily sitting in the studio right next to me, which is nice to see Cam ready to go. Uh, Dr. Ray, good to have you in the studio. Good to see you, Dr. Shane. It's great to see you too, Dr. Linden. You too, Dr. Shane, in real life, in 3D. I know, it's bizarre. I'm not sure what to do. I feel like I should... I I don't know. It's weird. I'll just wait for you guys to quietly leave and then I'll leave a few minutes later and, you know, keep our distance. (laughs) I think that's how it will happen. Folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have another big show coming up for you next week. Until then, though, stay tuned for Eat It. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.